Welcome to the Good Grow Great podcast, everyone, where we join you and other intelligent entrepreneurs out there in solving for meaningful growth in your business and solving for other people's growth so that you can keep growing where you are in your business. Growth solvers, let's get growing. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Today, I have Tyler King. Tyler is the co-founder and CEO of Less Annoying CRM, a software company that helps small business keep track of their customers and leads. His background is in software design and programming, but now he does a little bit of everything. Tyler, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great. So I'm actually really excited to have you on because I believe having seen and having known a lot of businesses that CRM and lead generation and lead management is really, really important. And you're in that world and you Mm -hmm. started this company, uh, Less Annoying CRM. So take us back a little bit, Tyler, to the kind of the early years of why you started the company, how you started it, and what are some of the challenges that you faced during those early years? Uh, yeah, so we, we kind of got started back in 2009, and that was before, well, maybe it existed, but I at least was not aware of doing customer interviews and validating ideas and all that type of stuff back then. So um, kind of the the genesis is I was working at a different tech startup as a software engineer, and uh, two things happened. One, they put me uh, in charge of setting up a CRM for the company. And so they wanted me to set up Salesforce, which is the biggest CRM. So, you know, really big enterprise, complex software to keep track of all your customer information. And I have a degree in computer science. I'm I'm pretty tech savvy. And I spent a month full-time working on it and effectively just gave up. (laughs) Um, So I was like, I'm sure this is good software once you get it up and running. But like, if I can't do this, I assume there are companies out there that don't have a full-time computer science major working on setting up their CRM. Um, so yeah, that was one of the problems I faced. And then the other one was, uh, I just built a little tool for at that company, like a little side CRM thing to help our customers. It wasn't meant to be a product or anything. It was just like a little side project and they loved it. So those two things connected. And I was just like, I, you know, I think there's demand for a really, really simple product that it doesn't have all the features. It's not nearly as sophisticated, but just kind of to bridge the gap between Excel, which a lot of companies are using, and Salesforce, which is a good fit for big companies, but not really for someone who needs something simple. Right. I love that. So basically, you identified that there is a segment of the market that essentially wants something more than just handling their own or managing their own Excel Mm -hmm. and the big, you know, Salesforce um, the, the big self, uh, Salesforce companies that are maybe too over the top, right? So, right. Um, so then, what was the catalyst then for you to, you know, from that position, from where you were, and then go, okay, you know what? I'm just going to do this. Was there ever any doubt as to, <laughs> you know, whether you should start it or you just jumped ahead because you knew at that point that everything was uh, already lined up for you? Yeah, um, there was doubt, but I wouldn't say fear. (laughs) And what I mean by that is I I recognized the strong possibility of it not working. But at the same time, you know, this is a good era to be a programmer. I'm very lucky to know how to code that I kind of, I think a lot of people have good backup options, but are afraid anyway. And 
I kind of recognized, you know, this is probably going to fail and then I'll just go get a job and that's not the end of the world. <laughs> right. Um, so you have a good plan B essentially. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and in terms of Catalyst, actually, th- this was almost nothing about my origin story here makes me look good because it's all like accident after accident. But uh, <laughs> so I was working at a different startup and my brother, who's one of the most talented people I've ever known, he came up to me with a totally different idea and was like, would you be interested in pursuing this idea? And I was like, yeah, let's do it. We, we committed that very day. It was like a one hour. We'd made the decision. We're going to do it. Uh, and then a couple of days later, we were talking about it and we were like, that, that's a terrible idea. Let's not do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we, the, the important thing is we had already decided to take the leap. Not that we could have backed out of it at that point, but I was like, no, let, you know, let's come up with other ideas. And so we spent a while brainstorming and bounced from idea to idea before settling on the CRM. So what was, and I'm curious to know, what was the idea that your brother came to you with? Yeah, it was, uh, we, there was a website back then, maybe it still exists, called Scent Sports, where they give you a penny or a dollar, I don't know, and you bet on sports with it. And mm. if you make a certain amount, you get to cash it out like real money. And so we were like, let's do that with uh, stocks, where we give a certain amount of money, you monetize it through ads, and then if they cross a certain threshold, which very few people would cross, you give them the money. Mm. Uh there are all kinds of reasons why I think it's a bad idea, but one of them is with sports betting, you can double your money in one game. With stocks, you double it after eight years. And so if you give someone a penny and say you can cash out at $50, you know, they'd be dead before they ever right. get anything out of that. So a lot and regulatory problems, there are all kinds of reasons why that was not a good idea. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I'm glad that you choose this your idea. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. I, fe- I felt like there's uh, definitely more mainstream appeal maybe in that it helps a lot more people and, uh, and, and can be a little bit more versatile there. So, okay. So you already talked about two, it seems like two good choices that you had to decide and you just mentioned that you work with your brother. And I'm always curious to know, especially for entrepreneurs out there who are listening and are thinking about taking on a partner or maybe a family or a friend on board. What was that conversation like? Did you ever have any major arguments or how did you manage kind of that working relationship uh, with uh, within, I guess, a family member? Because mm-hmm. what I've seen is that when you have a great working relationship with a family member in your company, it works beautifully, you know, but if you don't, then it works absolutely. It was, it's yeah. just really awful. Right. So, so talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's definitely a risk. I, I think you characterized it exactly right. That there's a lot of upside, but there's not necessarily downside. It doesn't have to go wrong, but if it does it, instead of ruining a relationship with a friend or, you know, someone else, it's ruining a relationship with a family member, which is terrible, of course. So luckily we, my family is pretty low drama. Um, we've never really had a lot of, or, or really any conflict or anything like that, that I know exactly what you're talking about, the classic family business drama. We haven't had that. I think what it really comes down to for us is neither of us are primarily motivated by um, maximizing financial outcomes. Like, Sure. You need to make enough money to be able to live the life you want. But beyond that, neither of us are particularly motivated by money. So like when it came time to figure out, well, who's the CEO going to be? I think both of us were just like, oh, whatever. It, it was, I think, clear it was going to be me, but I, I would have been fine the other way too. That helped. Um, 
we haven't really had much uh, like of that conflict, but I will say like one of the early employees that I hired, I did have that conflict. And if I, if I just flip them, if I'm like, I was co-founders with that person and they weren't just an early employee, it would have ruined the business. So mm-hmm. I can, I can see why that's a really risky thing to do at the time that I made the decision. It wasn't really on my mind though. Sure. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So what about the, and you mentioned bringing on your early, one of the early employees or maybe the first one. And when did that point start? Was that like year one, two, three, four, five? Like what's the Mm -hmm. kind of timeline? Walk us through that a little bit. I think a lot of people who are listening are curious because I think there is a general understanding of, okay, the early years are a little bit difficult. You need yeah. to stay a little slim. And a lot of them are figuring, okay, how much do I need to save up? Or how long do I need to hold out before hiring whatever, an assistant or somebody to handle this element of it, right? So mm-hmm. walk us through, you know, kind of the first 12, 18, 24 months or so. Like how many clients did you have? Was there like a tipping point where you say, okay, now we have X number of dollars and therefore we can kind of um, figure out a percentage of it into hiring? Yeah. So um, once again, this was all kind of unintentional because I was a first time founder, but what was really important to me was to not raise any money from investors because the last company Mm -hmm. I had worked at uh, had a lot of problems that... I liked a lot of stuff there. I learned a lot, but the problems that existed all came down to the fact that the investors' interests were misaligned with mine. And so when starting this company, it was really, really important to me and to my brother Bracken that we didn't raise any money. That effectively means you have a much longer uh, time horizon before you can really be comfortable. So, or, you know, this is called bootstrapping, right? So we bootstrapped for the first... uh, three and a half years before either of us were full-time. Um, the general trajectory here was it took us about three to six months to really build the first version of the product. I say three to six because you you launch something, but it's really not good enough to, right. for anyone to buy it, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, we, let's say we launched January 1st, 2010. I don't know the exact date, but it was around then. Um, mm-hmm. We had five paying users six months later. And we paid, we charged $10 per user per month. So it's really easy to calculate our revenue. We had $50 in monthly revenue six months in. So nowhere close to being able to support ourselves. Sure. Um, Yeah. So it was a really, really slow ramp up for us. That's well, I actually like the, your approach because I think think a lot of new businesses, they want to scale as fast as possible. Right. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, obviously the decision-making would have to be completely different. And you mentioned stakeholder and shareholder supremacy, which Mm -hmm. is, I think it has pros and cons, but you touched upon some of the cons. And I love that your approach is, okay, the the vision and the direction of the company needs to be aligned with what I believe in and not necessarily giving a return to anybody that wants it to be returned at X Mm -hmm. number of time, right? Exactly. So I love that approach because, you know, not a lot of people obviously are are able to, um, to look at it that way. Yeah. Well, and there's another, like I, this is another thing I lucked into. I didn't realize this at the time, but I think everyone knows, especially like a first time founder, I'm going to have to do a lot of things running this business that I've never done before, which means learning. Mm-hmm. And if you have investors, A, the money they give you allows you to grow faster. 
and B, their expectations are that you're going to grow really fast. Right. Um, that significantly shortens the amount of time you have to learn what you're doing. And I think I would very possibly not be the CEO of this company anymore. I, like, I, I may very well have been replaced. If, if we had to get where we are now, you know, right now we're at 17 employees, 2.6 million in revenue. If we'd done that in five years instead of 10, I think that rate of growth would have been more than I could like keep up with. And I bet either the company would have failed or I would have gotten replaced. Right. So I, I like what you just touched upon, which is the rate of growing and what you need to learn, um, especially in those early years, even though obviously you're fully qualified to run the company, but there's always that that curve, right? That mm-hmm. learning curve in how do we make this work in the most beautiful sense. It's almost kind of like building uh, building anything, really building a house or anything. You want the foundations to set. You want everything to kind of um, line up in the right way as, as good as possible before you build further up. Mm-hmm. So I do love, I love that analogy for sure. Um, so, so then how did you, in the early days, again, how did you get other people to know about your business and was it family, friends, you mentioned the, the core, whatever, five, 10 people that you have in your first year <laughs> yeah. is amazing. I love that story though. That's the reality, right? Mm-hmm. So did you actively, you know, actively kind of market yourself? Did you have people just referral bases? Was it from the kind of the, the occupations that you at that point were, have, you know, walk us through that a little bit. Yes. And this is, uh, I think probably one of the hardest parts for any entrepreneur, but I think I'm particularly not suited for this. Like I can, uh, design a product. I can build a product. The marketing is a weakness of mine for sure. We tried a lot of stuff in the early days. I wanted blogging to work because it fits with my style. We wrote a blog. We got traffic to it, actually. Nobody converted from the blog to being a customer. It just didn't work at all um, for us. Other people make it work, obviously. The, the only thing that we ended up having any success with was paid advertising, which is tough because it costs money and we didn't raise any money from investors. Sure. So. One of the reasons for our really slow growth rate is we were getting customers through Google AdWords where, you know, you pay a certain amount of money per click. If people do a Google search for simple CRM or whatever keywords you want to buy. Um, So we could only afford though to, you know, buy a very slow trickle of, of clicks from this because we didn't have a lot of money. So we just had to be patient, but that that's, you know, I wish I had more marketing hustle to me and I could have gone out and, hit the pavement and figured out other ways, but that, that's the only thing we ever really got to work. And then eventually it snowballs. I, I view each, each paid customer we get is a seed that we're planting in a new network of people. And that seed grows and hopefully becomes a happy customer and then continues growing by referring, you know, t- talking to friends and all that. And so over time we built up a word of mouth channel, but A, that takes a lot of time. B, you have no control over the growth. You just have to sit there and hope it happens. Um, and C, you still have to plant those seeds somehow. Uh, and with us, it was Google AdWords. Right. Well, I know a lot of people who's, who's used, who've used ads and it worked beautiful, but beautifully. And I know that to your point, there are people who obviously it's all just blogging, which is interesting how, you know, the two are slightly different, but, mm-hmm. um, it's, I think it also depends on what, uh, you know, the service, the product offering as well. So it could be that to your point, people are just Googling, okay, CRM, and then found you guys, obviously, and, and 
went from there, which is great. Yeah. So now you talked about getting people to have interest and converge through the ads was, and, and this is another step, right? After, let's just say after a few years into the business for most entrepreneurs, now the question is, okay, how do I keep the existing business? How do I grow it, right? Aside from just producing content and producing good quality uh, materials, like how do I then get net new customers, right? Mm -hmm. So now are you still doing ads? Are you doing like, are you shaking it up? I know you have a podcast. <laughs> yeah, uh, we, we still uh, have ads, a little bit of Google AdWords, a little advertising here and there. I, our marketing budget is pretty small. I think we have, in a typical month, we spend maybe five to $10,000 on marketing on $220,000 in revenue. So I think a typical company would be putting a lot more money towards that. Um, so there's some, but it, once again, it's the seed planting. I'd say that the philosophy that I align most with is what's called product-led growth, which is the idea mm -hmm. that, I mean, to some extent, yeah, make a good product, give good customer service, but you can kind of be more deliberate about it than that, right? You can think about what types of, in, in our case, we make software, what types of features could I make that make this a product people will share more than, like maybe there's 10 features I could build, but one of them makes it more shareable. Okay, that's what product-led growth would say to go do. Or, you know, we could go market externally or we could work on our landing page. Or, you know, that's the type of approach we normally take is to think we're not great at the outbound stuff, so let's just make what we control, our website, our product, our customer service, uh, really make the word of mouth as high as it can be. Right. So just took a different way or approach of looking at it. I love that. Now you mentioned your, your rate and I read on your website, I think that you haven't raised your rates mm -hmm. and a lot of people who are designing products, whether it's software or e-courses or what have you, what walk us through your decision-making on your pricing? Because I think a lot of people who are looking at your product obviously have are wondering, okay, now you're a few years, several years into this. What was the the reason behind not raising it? Is it really just, okay, we'll just multiply the amount of people who we serve mm -hmm. and, and keeping that baseline the same? Um, what are some of the, the thoughts that you have when you, when you look at that? Yeah. So I'm going to rationalize this, but let me start by saying this is another one that we kind of just stumbled into. Um, in the early days, our product, our, our pricing was as simple as uh, what's a nice round number that doesn't seem too high, but that's high enough that we can actually run a business off of it. And we came up with the number $10 per user per month, uh, probably in a five minute conversation and never really revisited it, to be honest. So I don't think anyone should really take my advice on this, but I'll say I, I really hate disappointing customers. I think that the um, trust is one of the most valuable things we've built, like the, the, the way our customers trust us makes everything else about the business so much easier. And one way to erode trust is to, you know, raise prices or other things like that. We could do it, we could get away with it, but we just, the way I look at it is you get to decide what parts of your business are going to be hard. Like it's going to be hard. There's no way to start a business and grow it in an easy way, but you can decide what's going to be hard. If you want to charge a lot or raise your prices constantly, that means your, your profit margins are easy, the, the financial stuff's easy, but the hard thing is you don't have that trust and so you have to make up for it in other ways. We decided that's not what we want to be hard. I don't care about the money enough, so 
we're going to make the pricing talk easy. We're going to underprice everybody. We're going to go after price sensitive customers. Um, and then we're, that means something else has to be hard. And so that, that might mean we don't get to hire people as quickly as we want to. So we have to do more work ourselves. Or, you know, it's all a balance thing. And we just decided price is not the thing that we want to make into a struggle for us. Right. So you mentioned that the compromise that you have to, I guess you have to counter, counteract because of the pricing is that you can't hire as, as many people or as, as often as you like, right? How mm-hmm. many people do you have in your company now, Tyler? Uh, so there's 17 of us, including me. Gotcha. Uh, so that's, I mean, you can always have more hats, right? I guess mm-hmm. <laughs> you're like, yep, I am dealing with some fires right now. <laughs> last week, I'm sure. Uh, so, so, and I love actually speaking to businesses that have a smallish team, you know, less than a hundred or so, because I'm curious always to know what are some of the leadership styles that you, and obviously just talking to you right now, it sounds like you have a more kind of natural leadership and just nothing that's a little bit, that's too corporate or too structured. Um, Was there ever any, you know, any issue as far as employment is concerned that you, that made you choose the, choose how you lead people a certain way, or was it just something that you've, um, you've naturally and organically decided to do? Yeah, it's it's completely been natural. Um, I would argue, so what I kind of thought was, eventually I'm going to hit a point where there's a problem and I need to learn how to manage because it's not working. And then I'll learn how to manage or learn how to build a culture or anything like that. And um, that never really happened. And I don't, I don't say that to say that it's been easy, but just that... Uh, I think a lot of traditional management techniques, the stuff that I think I lack, like what you were just saying, not very corporate, like I don't, I, I don't know how to go be a manager at a big company. I thought I'd have to figure that out. But what I realize now is there's a reason managers of big companies behave the way they do. It's rational, but that doesn't mean that I have to behave that way at a 17 person company. So especially in the really early days, you look at big companies and think maybe I should mimic them because they know what they're doing. But they don't do that because it's good. They do that because they have to or else the whole company will fall apart. Mm-hmm. At a one or five or 20 person company, you don't have to do that stuff. So, so far I've been able to just kind of use my natural style. I have to put a lot of thought into it and a lot of work into it, but I haven't had to like adjust who I am or be strategic about you know, my style or anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I I like that you just kind of naturally grew into it and it wasn't something that you overthink. I think a lot of people when they're they're running teams, they try to get a certain outcome as much as possible and it, and it's clear at least speaking with you that it's not really an outcome driven per se, though obviously we love a good, you know, good products and good performance, but um it's more about how can we do how can we keep this engine engine running, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. Well, and if I can just elaborate on that, I, I've started to think more and more that like what I was saying earlier, you get to decide what's easy and what's hard. Um, most people, if they like where they work and they're happy and all that are intrinsically motivated to do good work. And I don't think it needs to be the job of a manager to like, you know, force that um, as long as you put them in a position where they are inclined to be on your team. As long as they're paid well and their work-life balance is good and all that, I think people tend to self-manage a lot more than they do if they're in an unhappy environment. Mm-hmm. So have you thought about, or maybe you are doing this right now, do you, is your team 100% non-virtual or do you have some virtual 
um, I guess, team members as well that are also working for you? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, we, we started out fully remote. Uh, I was in San Francisco. My brother was in Boston. The first few people we hired were remote. And then eventually we decided we were going to all co-locate, I guess it's called, in one city. Sure. We grandfathered everyone in. So we said, anyone who is already remote can stay remote if they want. The only person who survived that was my brother. Um, so he's still in Boston. The other people, two people moved to St. Louis with us. Two people decided to stay remote and ended up leaving the company. So uh, I, I think that transition was really hard. I think it's doing fully remote is not super challenging. Doing fully co-located is not super challenging. But that middle ground where half the people mm -hmm. were in St. Louis and half weren't was really difficult to negotiate. Right. And that's, you're saying, because naturally, as far as meeting and, and agreeing on certain whatever issues that you want to resolve, it's just, the it's more scheduling, I guess, right, is likely the yeah. issue. Well, and I think the benefit of being in person is culture and like, there's a certain fidelity in those in-person interactions that you get. And by by its very nature, if you want to take advantage of that, it sort of means excluding the remote people because Mm. Uh, if, if, if it weren't excluding them, why be in person in the first place? Right, right, right. Absolutely. So then was the decision to move into brick and mortar also somewhat, um, you know, because obviously there's costs. I don't know if you're renting or if you're, you own the building that you're in. Uh, how was that? How did you guys decide or navigate through that question? Yeah. So first of all, we were moving from San Francisco to St. Louis. So cost of living got cut, <laughs> you know, by, in, a, in a fifth. It, it's nothing. Um, so uh, yeah, when we first moved, I had no idea what I was doing with office space. We moved into one of these monthly, uh, it, not a WeWork, but that type of thing, like a co-working space. Sure. Um, and that was really great for a while. I'm, we outgrew it in a year where it just didn't make sense to be in that environment anymore. But that that's a really good stepping stone because you don't have to commit to a long-term lease. You don't have to know what you're doing. It's really easy. Um, and then after a year of that, we hit maybe eight employees or so. And we said, it's time to get our own office. And we just found a real estate agent who taught us how it all works. And I mean, it, it was a process. There's so much stuff I know now that I didn't then, but uh, you know, it's kind of baby steps. Like if, if you look from, before we had an office to now, uh, I would be completely overwhelmed by trying to get an office. But since you just kind of take it one step at a time, uh, it ended up not being a huge deal. Right. So it's, it's basically true, right? That you only have to take that one step and then the next one will kind of reveal itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? <laughs> <laughs> right. Not the whole elephant, right? <laughs> you will die. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So, and I love these stories actually. So was there a moment then in your business or your journey here where when you you felt that you've totally failed, that you couldn't recover from anything. I don't know if there's a system that crashed, maybe you're in the <laughs> software, you know, like something mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. that degree. And I feel like a lot of entrepreneurs, especially if they've been in the business for a long time, there's always one or two points when they feel like, okay, this is time to just quit and throw in the towel. Yeah, I, I'm lucky enough that I don't think I really have an answer. I have a little anecdote I'll give in a second, but overall I'll say by... Um, bootstrapping, not having any outside investor pressure, hiring slowly. We've kind of always been sustainable. So there have been hard times, but you, you decide to, to take the risk to put yourself in a position where it's make or break. And we never took that level of risk, really. Mm -hmm. um, the, the closest we've had to that is we did have one weekend. You know, we're, we're a CRM, which means 
during the workday, people really need to be able to access our software. Uptime is really important. Um, we had a Friday where right around when work was ending, the site went down and we tried <laughs> thing after thing after thing to try and bring it back up. Something, something was missing. Still to this day, we don't know what it was, but um, the database was big enough at this point that it took, I think, eight hours to try and pull up the database from the backup. And so everything we tried, there's this eight hour lag. And then we can, <laughs> in eight hours, find out did that work or not. And uh, we did this over and over, iteration after iteration, and nothing worked. And Sunday afternoon, we tried our last thing because we were like, if, if it hits Monday and the site's right. down, I mean, it's not the end of the company, but if, if we have a week of that, it might be. Um, and luckily, our last try Sunday afternoon worked, and the site's just, I still have no idea what happened, but that was the most <laughs> stressful thing we've ever dealt with. Well, it sounds like the most stressful, what is that, like 72 hours or so? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. The, the other one I have like this that, that's a little more fun is when my, my brother, his, uh, when his wife went into labor with their first kid, right when he went to the hospital, the site went down and he's the server guy. So I figured out a command I could run on the server that would uh -huh. temporarily for about five seconds, keep it up. And I just ran that command every five seconds until he was back from uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> this kid. <laughs> so how long, how long was that? I mean, labor is not a short, it's not yeah, five yeah. seconds for sure. Um, I think probably I was doing that for 18 hours or something like that. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and then he came back and like fixed it immediately. So it was just bad timing. <laughs> so five seconds for 18 hours, whatever it is, yeah, dozens yeah. of hours. That's, that's hilarious. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is how company is made, you guys. This is how it's done. <laughs> yep. So, okay. I love that story. So then um, on the opposite, opposite side of the spectrum, Tyler, was there a moment when, or an event or a win or a success um, in your business where you felt that, okay, now my business is off to the races or maybe one big corporate client or what have you that really w was the uh, tipping point. You mentioned Snowball uh, mm -hmm. there earlier in our conversation. So uh, once again, kind of the answer is no. And uh, some people might find this discouraging because I think everyone has this dream of, you know, sure. it's really hard and then eventually everything clicks and it's just smooth sailing. But the flip side of that is, if that's the case, you have to have that tipping point. We've honestly just had like a long, slow, gradual ramp up. Um, in terms of growth and stuff like that, there's never, there's never been a single big deal that really went our way because we sell to really, really small companies. So we've never like had that big customer or that big marketing campaign that really worked. There have been inflection points where a thing happened like the first time I was in a real office with employees around me and I just kind of looked around and was like, whoa, this happened. Like, this is real. Mm -hmm. But the whole, the whole journey has just been a gradual increase. Sure. No, that's absolutely, it sounds like most 90% of the stories as far as entrepreneurship is concerned, you just built one after the other, you know, mm -hmm. build one step after the other. That's great. Exactly. So um, now a lot of business owners, CEOs have, mentors or people that they follow or look up to who is someone that you currently look up to or maybe follow for you know inspiration or guidance for your business and what is maybe the one thing that you admire about him or her the most um yeah so i i have a lot of uh, personal people that i i talk to and stuff like that um the 
The one I'll give that maybe is more universally accessible is I've always looked up to the company Basecamp as kind of a role model for what I'm trying to do. And if, for anyone who doesn't know Basecamp, it's a software company like mine that really early to the software as a service game, huge success. And at about 50 employees, they just decided this is the size we want to be. And they just kind of stopped being motivated by growth at that point, which really has had a big impact on me. The two founders, Jason Fried and David Hennemeyer Hansen, both blog and tweet and all that a lot. And so I love following what they do because what you see now, it's not like they retired on some beach and stopped caring about the business. They're very committed, very involved, but their goals shifted from you know, grow like a normal startup to, okay, now we are what we want to be. What are, what are our other goals? Let's, let's make it a great place for people to work or let's do really interesting things for our customers. And I didn't, you know, living in San Francisco around all the tech startups, I thought there was one way to do it. And it's, you have to become a hundred billion dollar company, like the next Google. And it was really refreshing to see, oh no, you can like, there's, there's other ways to do this and other goals that you can have. Right. And I love that actually what you just mentioned kind of touched upon what you mentioned earlier as well, as far as, um, you know, hiring, you know, versus pricing and the fact that at a certain point it, it will be, I don't know whether it's enough or not for certain people, but it's just whatever you want to define it. And mm-hmm. maybe the definition of what you want to do next is not necessarily to gain more customers or to grow bigger, but to do it in a certain way that whatever, right? Helping your, your customers or helping your employee employees. Um, so I, I kind of like that perspective, which I think a lot of people who are starting out, they don't necessarily look at it in that, from that uh, perspective, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like if you're making it, the same thing applies to individuals, if you're making poverty wages, like if you're making $15,000 a year, mm-hmm. you probably are really motivated by money. And in the early stages of a company, it's the same way. But once you're making whatever your number is, you know, 50 or 75 or a hundred thousand dollars a year. At that point, you can still choose to make more money, but you could also say, no, I'm, you know, I'm going to start focusing on other things. And it's the exact same thing with a business. That's, that's excellent. So as I look at the time here, Tyler, let's close the podcast actually with sharing with the audience where they can find you, your website or any of your products. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. So the, Probably there are three main places. So my company, once again, is Less Annoying CRM, and that's just lessannoyingcrm.com. Um, I am fairly active on Twitter, Tyler M. King. And uh, the final thing is I recently started my own podcast. Uh, so if anyone's interested in hearing me blabber on a little bit more, it's at startuptolast.com. Excellent. Tyler, thank you for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. This was awesome. If you want to get a free 5,300-word ultimate guide on how to get more clients by making a remarkable impression and find out the biggest steps that most people miss on that can actually make a massive impact in growing your business, go to goodgrowgreat.com slash GMC, goodgrowgreat.com forward slash GMC. GMC stands for Get More Clients, and we'll send that ultimate guide your way so that it can make a massive impact in your business. Until then, Growth Solvers, let's keep growing. Growing.